one. And we are recording with the one and only Dr. Robert Malone. And uh, Tommy, why is your beautiful pale Irish face so red? I definitely didn't just get back from the gym and, you know, Dr. Malone said he's ready now. So when the good doctor says he's ready, I'm ready. So with that, today is Wednesday, October 19th, 2022. And uh, I believe the uh, the the humane and 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 loving empathetic researchers in Boston have for whatever reason created a COVID strain with an 80% lethality rate. But I'm humble enough and I, I'd like to think mature enough to think that that may or may not be an attention grabbing headline and I may or may not grasp the entire thing because I am not a molecular researcher and I don't design molecules with CRISPR. So Dr. Malone, could you illuminate for me and my fellow audience of of plebs to uh the importance of this and why in god's name are they doing it uh uh i can't i can't say why they're doing it they're chasing a scientific question that has to do with which domains in omicron versus wuhan are responsible for the mortality it's important to remember that the original wuhan strain in this particular mouse model essentially has a 100% mortality rate. So uh, what they've done is absolutely made a chimeric virus in an effort to try to discern whether it's the modifications in spike itself that are responsible for the shift in mortality associated with Omicron, or is it other domains? And clearly there are uh, domains outside of spike that are contributing to the uh, morbidity and mortality, the disease and death um, in, in the mutant form versus the, let's say a precursor hypothetical SARS-CoV-2 that didn't have the fear and cleavage site, I guess. Um, what matters about this uh, is that Boston University circumvented the rules. They should not have been doing gain of function research. They've, there's a whole lot of scrambling going on right now about uh, whether or not this was funded in part by NIH, and they had attributed the funding to NIH, but NIH now has disavowed, dis, disavowed any knowledge of any authorization or even awareness that these studies were ongoing. So then we have Boston University trying to cover its tracks by saying that, well, we only put NIH funding on there as a um, uh, uh, for for uh, as a courtesy, um, uh, and that they didn't actually fund this, and so therefore we didn't actually have to notify them. Uh, and what it implies is that Boston University has kind of gone rogue in terms of their um, oversight process for ensuring. Uh, uh, compliance with uh, established norms, federally established norms. And they're trying to take the position that, well, we didn't have to follow the federal guidelines and NIH guidelines, even though we performed this in an NIH funded facility, uh, because uh, the nuance that, well, we didn't specifically rely on NIH for the money for this. We relied on Boston University money. That is splitting hairs. Um, and, uh, um, BU received the contract for this BSL-3 high containment facility located in Boston, urban area, 
which I've argued for a long period should never have been done. Um, and it was politically motivated. This is how Tony Fauci plays the game, is he allocates money by congressional districts and basically uh, rewards Congress people with uh, grants and contracts and facilities, et cetera. There's a whole uh, feedback loop here that's really, it's a different, it's a more subtle form of the old pork barrel strategy. Uh, and because Tony doesn't really work, he doesn't work for the executive branch per se. He can't be fired by the executive branch. His customer is Congress. And he plays a game that's very similar to what biotech plays with uh, Wall Street in the in the kind of the pump and dump scheme that, that goes on and really is florid in the case of the mid-sized va uh, vaccine manufacturers. But Tony Fauci's version is uh, kind of very similar, but his his customer, his investor, basically, is Congress. And so they appropriate money for him. And he has a very large uh, PR group. It's over 60 people that work for him at his branch of NIH. It's not the whole NIH. And they actively cultivate these relationships and provide quid pro quo all the time. And that's basically how Boston University ended up with that facility in Boston as part of the Boston Biomedical Scientific Research Complex. And the logic is obviously flawed. Um, we shouldn't have high containment facilities inside of major dense urban environments. That's just flat out nutso. Uh, but BU has managed to capture this. And uh, it could well be that there is a component here if it is actually funded by Boston University, which is what they're claiming. And that's not just a, a limited hangout uh, um, in order to cover everybody's backside. Uh, but if if that is the case, then I think there does deserve to be scrutiny about why BU would independently fund this kind of work. Um, you know, often these studies are funded as pilot projects in the hopes of getting a larger contract based on the preliminary data. The general in this world uh, that we're talking about, the general rule of thumb is that if you want to get a contract to do a block of work uh, or a major grant from NIH, you should have ideally already completed at least half of the research that you were requesting funding for before you submit the proposal. Um, and so universities understand how this game is played because, of course, the way it works is that the deans and the university basically get between a 40% and 100, up to 110% tax on any of the money that's actually awarded for the purpose of doing the research. We call this indirect costs, but that's what it is. Um, all of this is really about generating massive amounts of federal subsidy for the medical schools and their research complexes. Did that make sense, Tony? When you say there's a tax, is it the, the dean and them are skimming it off the top for the university? Yeah, functionally, that's the case. It's called indirect costs. Got it. And uh, so that's a negotiated rate with the federal government. And at places like Harvard, it exceeds 100%. So for every dollar that the investigator gets when he wins his proposal, 
um, that the university itself may get a dollar, a dollar ten, a dollar fifty, uh, and in as it works, that's a that's a separate negotiation that happens between the NIH and the university to establish that uh, that indirect cost rate, and the reviewers don't see that. What they see is the cost. The people that are guiding the decisions about what things should be funded and not funded, they're actually told not to consider those issues. They only consider the primary budget. Uh, and so that's that's how that whole thing works is in, in the modern world, uh, most of these investigators are not on a guaranteed salary. They operate as small business people within the university um, and uh, in order to have the right to have the status of the university and the infrastructure um, and use that, they have to basically tithe to their dean and department chair and to the university structure through this kind of system. So they have to raise their own salary, um, their own uh, costs for doing research, uh, the salaries for all their other people, new equipment, supplies, et cetera through uh, obtaining grants. And then uh, when they get that, then they have to have these indirect costs that are taken off the top. And that, you know, the way the ecosystem works is that the universities then take that money that they're getting for indirect costs, quote unquote, and they use some of that as seed capital to fund new projects that will generate new grants. I mean... (laughs) You know, we we talked last time in the the episode we did about, you know, biotech and big pharma kind of being not similar, but rather an offshoot to the DOD and the military industrial complex. And this just solidifies my belief in that because this sounds almost identical to cost plus contracting or no bid contracting. And also, this is something that like Northrop and Boeing, they were working, they were perfecting the system in the 70s about congressional, they build factories based on districts of. No, I'm 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 very uh, familiar with the various contracting vehicles, and your metaphor is precisely correct. This is a cost plus fixed fee arrangement. It's, you know, it, it's almost kind of like uh, it's almost like the speed of light, right? It's like universally accepted. As you get closer to that speed, you need exponentially more energy to get the same amount of mass moving forward at an exponentially smaller amount. And it's, I mean, truly is the most powerful example of diminishing returns. It's almost like as a nation goes on, you sort of approach this like federal speed of light. And maybe the natural cap is like 250 years because it seems like you hit a point (laughs) where all the, right? That's what all the guys say that we're always in like, I mean, I know I'm from friends with the guy who did business in the former Soviet Union in the late 80s and uh, right, right up until, and then after it fell too. But like the amount of corruption just to get on a train and get off a train and get into your hotel and to get off an, a highway off ramp, the amount of money you had to pay, you started to go, why are we even doing business? Even if we are making a killing on, say, fresh, fresh tuna, the amount of money it takes just to get an executive to go meet with someone in Moscow is so much money that there's almost this like we're at this point now where. It's so bloated. There's, it's like those dogs you see. Those, they're really sad. Those pictures when they have all the ticks on them. It's like that's America. It's just covered in these bloated ticks. Well, that and it's is like, that is an ugly metaphor. It's disgusting. Hey, so, 
but we're tight today. Did you yeah, want to yeah. talk about the CDC? The CDC. Oh, I want to ask. I want to ask about that. Um, I know. I know. I know. I gotta let you go in in in, in seven minutes. Um, the CDC voting. I saw this last night to permanently shield Pfizer from uh, vaccine injury liability. Is that correct? So the the we don't know how this is going to play out. So let's hold yeah. our our powder yeah. dry a little bit. Yeah, we do. Um, because it could well it well it could this is starting to come to a head. Okay. Uh, there are. There's a bunch of organizations that participate in the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, which is the Advisory Committee to uh, the CDC and Rochelle Walensky. Uh, and some of them are starting to say, no, this is too much. And we even have, uh, I like to say, Paul Offit, uh, who takes credit for inventing the rotavirus vaccine. Actually, it was the second generation one, and it was a large team. Uh, but that's his claim to fame. And uh, he's been very involved in vaccine advocacy and oversight on behalf of the federal government. And I often say, Paul Offit, up until just uh, last few months, I don't think he'd ever seen a vaccine that he didn't want to jab into a child. Uh, <laughs> And um, even Paul Offit now is uh, getting cold feet and oh. said that we've gone too fast, too far. Um, there's also apparently one of the associations, and I was not able to track it down in the time before this call, but I, I was told that uh, one of the organizations that participates in the ACIP, one of the professional organizations, has also written a statement in which they are absolutely against um, authorization in children. And you'll recall there are multiple nation states in Europe that have said no more of these genetic vaccines for 17 and below. On the other side, we have Rochelle Walensky, director of CDC or nominal director, um, having made a statement about a week ago that she fully endorses that uh, children five and up should be receiving the uh, booster, quote unquote, reformulated bivalent product. Uh, and so she's kind of prejudiced the meeting already by saying that. Now, you're absolutely right that technically, if if uh, the the way this food chain works um, uh, is that Advisory Committee on Immunization Practice. So the FDA approves or authorizes. In this case, it's still emergency use authorized down to age five. Okay, so they're not actually approved. They're technically still experimental. And uh, there has absolutely been a drive by the pharmaceutical industry, uh, Pfizer and Moderna, to get the products uh, onto the immunization schedule recommendation for the vaccines for children program, because once that is done, that triggers a liability waiver clause that will um, uh, survive uh, the um, termination of the state of emergency, medical emergency, which has been declared and was recently renewed by Biden, <clears throat> and uh, which Congress has the right to conclude, to, to reject uh, the executive branch's uh, um, uh, declaration of medical emergency in this case, and they have just uh, weenied out on that. But uh, so the Biden administration has continued to extend, and I think just did recently again. Uh, and that 
allows the whole emergency use authorization superstructure to remain in place with all of those authorizations. As soon as that state of emergency is allowed to expire or it's rescinded by Congress, then um, the clauses under which these vaccines and many of the drugs are authorized in monoclonal antibodies, which is uh, emergency use authorization, EUA requires that declaration of a state of medical emergency. So once that stops, all of those vanish, uh, you know, like pouring water on the Wicked Witch. And uh, um, so it it appears there's clearly a uh, liability interest. Oh, finishing the story. So the way that the ecosystem works is that ACIP, once it recommends that a product be put on the uh, vaccines for children schedule, then there is automatic authorization from Congress to purchase that product. Okay, so it is like the only case in the entire federal government where Congress has pre-authorized purchase and there is a civilian committee of unelected officials that make it basically a purchase decision on behalf of the government that is not subject to uh, federal acquisition regulations. And uh, that will trigger an automatic buy uh, and distribution and potential requirement uh, for schools to uh, require uh, this uh, um, uh, recommended uh, product that is in the childhood vaccine schedule uh, for all children prior to entry into school. Um, and so it's a it's a twofer for the pharma because they get a automatic purchased in perpetuity direct from Congress without any congressional oversight, and they get a liability waiver. So that appears to be what the push is for. I absolutely don't get it. None of us have ever heard of a case. There is no prior case where there was no clear demonstration of effectiveness of the vaccine in preventing and saving, preventing uh, um, uh, hospitalization, uh, major illness or death in in a child cohort uh, um, prior to authorization for the childhood schedule. And I was just, for this podcast and others later, I was reviewing the FDA statement of, uh, let me just uh, catch the date, October 12th, uh, 2022, in which they lay out what they call the effectiveness of these products in children. And in what they're basically saying is that effectiveness uh, normally means that the product is producing some impact on disease. And what the FDA has done cleverly is to define effectiveness as an immune response. Um, and so what they've shown in a very small cohort of children is that the booster provokes an immune response that is statistically equivalent using a small cohort of about 1,200 subjects uh, to the immune response elicited by the first two jabs. Okay, so they define immune response as effectiveness. That's gibberish. It has nothing to do, there's no clear correlation with uh, 
prevention of disease. And what they're measuring is not a proven correlate of protection. Okay, that's a hard thing to do. And that's essential in the vaccines business always has been. If you want to substitute some assay, instead of actually testing whether or not children or adults are protected from the disease, then you have to first prove that that assay correlates with protection. That's never been done. So this is a total sleight of hand. That's on the uh, effectiveness, which is different from efficacy, by the way. Efficacy is something measured in clinical trials. And what they're actually measuring here is not, even with that tortured definition, is not effectiveness, field effectiveness. It's children within a trial. So they are basically twisting their own language. Yeah. Um, the other thing that they're asserting is that in a cohort of 1,200 children, they've assessed safety. And they conclude that there are no major safety events in that cohort of 1,200 children that they've examined. And so therefore it's safe and effective. That's how their language is going. But um, here's the news. In a cohort of 1,200, that is only powered enough statistically to detect something that occurs at a rate of about 1 to 300 or 1 to 400. It's the rule of three, mm -hmm. four, eight, 12. So anything that would occur at a frequency of less than or, or greater than one in 400, in other words, myocarditis occurs in one in 3,000, for example, of young adults, um, uh, particularly males, it's one in 3,000 approximately, uh, their safety study would never detect a single case of myocarditis at a total population sample size of one of 1200. Does that make sense? You, they'll only detect the very, very common things that happen at a rate of one in 400 or less. And so once again, they're, they're using, um, they are distorting the common language process, well-established principles of vaccinology and clinical research and medical affairs uh, to support a narrative that they want to promote, which is the narrative that it's safe and effective. But when you look under the covers, nothing stands up to scrutiny. Over? It's a, <clears throat> it's kind of like uh, using an, an unsophisticated satellite for spy intelligence or for satellite intelligence. If you get something that doesn't have a resolution of one by one feet, you can look at all of Manhattan. You'll never see a human versus oh, zoom well, out a little well, more. Yeah, it's it's actually a good metaphor. So so despite uh, these obvious contradictions and flaws, uh, they are still uh, determined to proceed, which uh, there's nothing more overt uh, that I could think of to demonstrate that the system has been deeply corrupted. At this point, I'm almost just I'm in a dark way. I'm almost just happy that it's playing out the way it is, because clearly people doing interviews and talking about it professionals voicing their opinions isn't changing anyone's mind so you almost have to be shown it that it is yeah. corrupt to the core um and i know i gotta let you run it's 129 uh i i did want to say lastly uh you know it's kind of like the butterfly effect i applied to 35 medical schools in 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 uh 2013 and i only wrote a letter of intent to one it was Boston University because I wanted to go to med school in Boston, move up from Georgia and be closer to family. And they outright rejected me. So, you know, 
maybe I wouldn't be doing this podcast if it was for that. So, so many of life is, is reaping the, the, the fruits of your labor. So shout out Boston university. You should have just let me in. And, uh, <laughs> with that, Dr. Malone, thank you so much. I know I got to let you go. I've kept you minutes, five minutes. I've kept you five minutes longer than I said I would. Cause I'm a terrible host. So I apologize for that, but the good doctor, your book will be out sometime in November. And I will put the link to your getter and your gab and all that good stuff in the description. Thank you so much. And, Thank you to Dr. Glasspool, as always, for uh, being patient with me. God bless you, Dr. Malone. Thank you so much.